Today, I'm bringing a rather unique guest. This is someone who managed to go viral and essentially explode in a video career off of the back of a squirrel. This is David Freiheit. He is a YouTuber with Viva Fry. How are you doing today, David? Very good in yourself. Fantastic. I'm really happy to have you. And what I love about you is you're all over the map with your videos. I discovered you through... You do these legal videos where you break down depositions and things of that sort. And then I started to research you more because I enjoyed those. And then I found out, oh, there's a squirrel video he does. Oh, wait, he does a video while he's um, donating blood. Oh, he's cooking ostrich eggs. (laughs) So, I I mean, I've been on the platform since 2013, 2014 and creating content consistently as of 2014. And... Back then, I mean, I was I was just a lawyer uh, day in and day out, and I had gotten a GoPro for, it was either Valentine's Day, but it was in February, and I discovered this whole thing about using GoPros to create, not content for YouTube, just to create videos. And then I uploaded one to the internet, which was this squirrel video where the squirrel steals a GoPro, carries it up a tree, drops it, which went viral in the actual viral sense. Like it picked right. 5 million views in a week, and it was all over the news. It had gotten licensed out by National Geographic. I think Der, uh, some German papers, Der Spiegel, I think, got it. It was in Japanese newspapers. It was on the front page of the Spanish, the biggest, like the CNN for Spain. And um, people were asking for interviews. And I discovered this entire world of content <laughs> on YouTube. And then I started making these videos just periodically using the GoPro. Uh, and it, you know, it, it morphed into what it is today, which... Uh, in throughout 2014, 2015, random videos just using a GoPro for all that could be done. Um, right. Then I started making vlogs and at one point started doing the daily vlog to see how far I could go with that. And when I was making these daily vlogs, I would occasionally touch on the fact that I'm a lawyer and start talking about that. And I noticed those videos always got consistent engagement. Uh, people were asking questions, saying they're in law school, law school, asking for advice and stuff. And then I just started making more of those to the point where uh, right now, I dedicate the channel to what I call vlogs, V-L-A-W-G-S. <laughs> I've applied for the trademark in Canada and the U.S. And we'll see uh, vlogs as in video legal analysis for YouTube and online video platforms. And um, and I've been doing those and people people love them. It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to see the reaction to these videos. It, it, it is great to see. And I think you probably have good odds of getting the trademark. I've never seen that put together. Plus you're a lawyer. So. <laughs> I, I, you know, I applied for it myself in Canada because I could navigate the Canadian uh, trademark system, but the US one was too complicated. I ended up using LegalZoom. So I might, uh, I might have to use that as a basis to ask them for a sponsorship in the future, but we'll see how it works out. It's like a wait of six to eight months before you get news uh, either in Canada or the US. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you actually are trademarked right now. It's just a matter of the registration. That's right. I'm common law protected, but not uh, not officially registered with the USPTO in, uh, in Canada. It's called the CEPO, Canadian Intellectual Property Office. Perfect. As long as you keep creating videos, you should be Oh, fine. yeah. No, no. Proof of creation is cut and dry October 2017, I think was the first time I used it. It was actually someone suggested it. One of the viewers, one of our subscribers said, oh. hey, v- vlogs, you mean vlogs, V-L-A-W-G-S. And I, I only wish I could thank him because I don't remember who it was, but uh, it, it, it stuck and people love it. Now, some, somebody recommended I do, uh, I call Barney, my French bulldog, the, the vlog dog, like V-L-A-W-G, D-A-W-G. <laughs> so we'll see. It might, it might turn into some good merchandising opportunities. <laughs> Yeah, get an account with T Public and uh, be shipping out vlog dog shirts. And you're, well, who's your other dog? You have another dog that you uh, pull around and has a yeah, part. P- uh, Pudge. She's Pudge the Paralyzed Puggle, who was my sister in law's <laughs> dog. And she suffered a slip disc about uh, two and a half years, a little over two years ago. And we ended up taking her just because um, she, we could take, you know, we, we, we have a, the means of taking better care of her and giving her the attention she needs and she plays with our other dog and it's sort of, it worked out well. Now you're a, you're a lawyer from a family of lawyers, pretty much lawyers, every direction. I think even your in-laws are lawyers. I have a strange observation. It seems like lawyers are in that one field that everybody wants to quit and do something else. There's many lawyers that become authors or lawyers that do this 
Why is that? So starting from the beginning, yeah, there are, we have five kids in the family, four of the five are lawyers. My brother, who's a lawyer, his wife is a lawyer. My other brother, who's a lawyer, his wife is a non-practicing lawyer. My sister's a lawyer. Trying to think of who the other in-laws' parents are lawyers. Uh, And we have a few doctors in the family as well. And it's not a question of there being any family pressure as to whether or not we had to do it and my dad pushing us because he's a lawyer. It was organic, natural, just the way we went about our education. We got degrees in philosophy or creative arts, studied law, and then you know became lawyers. But as a practice, it is uh, it is an industry that that like investment banking. It's it's either you you survive in it or people just find it not uh, a sustainable lifestyle and move out of it. And I did commercial litigation. I still do some of it. I have a couple of files that I just even when I decided to wind up that side of my practice, I couldn't get out of because I was too heavily invested with the client, and it's not fair to them to make them go get another lawyer after four years and learn the file. So I, I have mm-hmm. a couple of trials coming up, but commercial litigation is like. Uh, it's it's warfare every day of the week, and and there's like there's a term for it now that people call it lawfare, uh, insofar as people use the litigation process oh, okay. for a, a, in the same way they used warfare at the time. Now they just use it to to exhaust their enemies financially, spiritually, and holy tactic. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a soul crushing thing to some extent, which is why I think a lot of people end up going from the big firms in house where it's a little less litigious, uh, or go from litigation to corporate, or go from litigation to you know, commercial sort of non-litigation law, it's to describe the stresses, it's difficult to explain because if you haven't experienced it, you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to relate to it. If you've dealt with a lawyer, you'd be able to relate to it. And if you've ever had to hire a lawyer, you'd know for sure. It's just day in and day out battle. And not like a battle as in everyone thinks it's a pursuit of the truth. It's it's dirty fighting. It's always looking over your shoulder. It's always having to not say something that you think might be used against you to opposing counsel. It's having to protect your client from themselves, from others. And I always said it would have been fantastic if I could have loved it as much as I love other things because I was good at it. And people viewed me as when I was at the big law firm where I started, as they, I think they use the term pedigree, uh, as in taking for granted that mm-hmm. I was going to go up and become a senior partner like my dad was at, at his law firm. And I would have loved to have loved it because I could have been great at it and been financially set for you know for the rest of my life and had a career that I, I know what I would do every morning, but it was not something that I found sustainable. And um, I had what I called the, the the rolling the rolling timeline where I said if it's not better in a year and if I don't love it in a year, I'm going to stop and just do something else. And I said that for ten years. And then I, when when everything sort of came together with YouTube and I figured out this whole new industry and I figured out I could supplement what would ultimately be lost income by winding down the litigation side it became the natural sort of thing to do because I had gotten my 10,000 hours in on YouTube and I figured out how that worked to some extent, although I'm learning every day. Uh, and I said, I, sure. it makes me happy to do this. I don't, I don't, it doesn't make me happy every day to have to destroy an adversary or have to navigate interactions with an adverse opposing counsel, but creating content that is at the time was just lighthearted fun made me happy. And now creating this content, the law vlogs that are lighthearted, fun, educational, uh, I call it non-polarizing. You know, it, it's right. it's it's sort of my ikigai, that Japanese concept of purpose in life, where what I'm good at, what the world needs, what I can get paid for, and what was the fourth one? What you're good at, what you love, what you can get paid for, and what the world needs. And when all four of those Venn diagrams overlap, that's your purpose in life. And it feels like this could be the ikigai if I could just make it a little bit more financially sustainable, but uh, we're, we're, we're getting there in terms of figuring out how to treat it like a business and not a hobby. Yeah, I was wondering about that too, if you, if you were able to get over that hump, because there is a, I mean, you're, you have a very popular channel. It's, it's certainly getting there. It's doubled in the last three months since I've really dedicated to the vlog, the VLAWG. It's I picked up 25,000 subscribers over the last month and 40,000, give or take, over the last few months. And not just numbers in terms of subscribers, because a lot of people watch but don't subscribe. The engagement, the viewership has been has been great. It's, it's sort of like I found the niche that I was always sort of meant to occupy on this space, but I was reluctant to do it um, or just you know stubborn enough that I didn't want to do it. I, you know, so I like cooking and fishing and all this stuff. But when you, the jack of all trades, master of none type thing, and you make too much variety on YouTube, it's not good for the channel because YouTube doesn't know who to recommend your videos to. Subscribers that you have don't know what's coming and people who came for fishing don't want to stay for cooking. People who came for cooking don't want to stay for law videos. 
Um, and so it's, it's sort of that whole environment that you have to navigate in terms of finding the niche, but I've organically found this niche and it's, it's, it's good also because I get to use my 15 years of law experience for, for something practical. I was thinking that, that it's like your, your way to practice law, but have fun at it. it, it I mean, that's exactly what it, it feels like. There's the, the stress because I was not bad at dealing with stress. I was just never able to not internalize the issues that my clients were going through. And uh, the analogy I always say is like the doctors who operate on a body have to separate themselves from the human that's behind their patient. Otherwise, it becomes uh, you know very difficult to continue doing what they're doing. And a lot of lawyers have to you know you have to do that in law as well. You can't feel the stress for your clients all day long, and you can't feel their problems as though they're your own because if you lose the case, it's their case. You're just the lawyer. But um, I I felt the stresses, um, and I could never dissociate my own spirit from the problems that my clients were going through. And to some extent, I could also not fully dissociate myself from the opposing party because I, I could empathize with everybody in the file and even if I could destroy someone in examination. I swear, I'm not saying this just to say it. I, I would not feel good about myself at the end of the day, even though I did what I had to do sure. well. Um, and with, with these law blogs, you know, I, I can play devil's advocate. I can explain both sides, even if I don't, even if I don't believe in both sides, even if I, have a position one way or the other, I can still not just empathize, but accurately and objectively describe the other side's position so that people can at least have both perspectives and then come to their own conclusion. Um, and, and I think that if you pick some winners too, good Lord. Oh, well, I mean, there's some interesting things people want people. We live in a day now where people don't know where to go to get clean, unbiased information. I mean, every, we take for granted that everything has spin and everything has the underlying interest of the people presenting the information, but it gets frustrating at some point because you just don't know how to navigate through all of it and know what to believe and know where to go. And the, you know, I, I don't consider what I'm doing to be particularly unique. It's just that not having vested interests in the subject matter and being able to... Uh, accurately empathize with both sides. You can at least present both sides, even if you don't agree with one. Um, and so I think that's what people are, are liking and dealing with subjects like how to, how to read and how to, na- how to navigate the Mueller report, where you know that whoever's covering it is going to give you some political angle to it. Uh, it's, it's what people are looking for. You know, and people are looking for just accurate, succinct breakdowns of situations without the media hype. So like the Jussie Smollett case, it's, it's, it's interesting in law, but you can't really even just get the legal analysis of it because media has to drive clicks and media has to glamorize and, and um, what's the word, exaggerate and sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Hype up the, 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 the underlying story. But people are just interested in understanding the underlying story. So there's been some great topics that, I can, that have come up in the news. And even when the news is quiet, there's great old topics out there. That McDonald's lawsuit. I mean, pe- people still love that lawsuit. And, and I think 90% of people don't know the details of that lawsuit. They just know the headline. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who's been on the show before, Richie Lemiro, had um, the lawyer who tried that case on his show. Well, it, it was he, he was the plaintiff's lawyer. Yeah, he, he, I mean, it did a good job. It's, uh, it, it, what's amazing is the lawyers presented a good case. It's just amazing how the details got... I don't know if whitewashed is the right word, but they just got filtered down or filtered out in the media coverage. And that when I grew up, I only knew that case as being the poster child of frivolous lawsuits in the States. And it was only actually when I did a public speaking competition on it as a lawyer, my first, when I was a young lawyer, um, that I learned the details. And I said, you know, this looks like a frivolous lawsuit on its face. This is why people laugh at lawyers. But the second a real lawyer or someone with more information than just the headline gives you the details. Then you realize that things are more nuanced than, uh, than they're, than they're generally passed off to be. Well, everything is nuanced. A sound bite doesn't go well with nuance. That, that's, that's where I think everything is nuanced and we live in an era now where nobody has time or the interest to pay attention to the nuance and where the purveyors of information have no interest in conveying the nuance because it doesn't, it doesn't drive traffic. It doesn't drive panic. It doesn't drive interest, and it doesn't create hype. Um, and and uh, it's 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 a problem. I don't know if it's getting worse now or if it's always been this way in one form or another. And I, I suspect it's always been this way in one form or another. It just feels more pronounced now with the pervasiveness of social media, where uh, it, it's all about driving traffic, 
getting the attention and nuance and nuanced discussion doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily do that. Yeah, well, and everything's magnifying. And I mean, it's a lot of it. I'll blame on your uh, current employer, YouTube. But how many times am I going to see such and such smashes, blah blah blah, or crushes, or defeats, or slaughters, or you know, all these terms? And then you watch, you're like, well, they had a discussion that was almost a debate, but I didn't see anybody really crushed or slammed. Or you'll read an article and you have a headline, and then three quarters of the way through the article, the truth is actually the opposite of what the headline was. Pathological. It's systemic and pathological. Uh, at least on YouTube, there is something of a check and balance where you can have your clickbait title, and everybody knows you have to have a clickbait title to drive traffic. But there is the evaluation process of the thumbs up and thumbs down. So if your if your clickbait title is actually an inaccurate representation of the video, you get punished by the comments and the thumbs down. But in in the media, I mean, it's uh, you know the, the headline is often totally uh, unre- not unrelated but unreflective of the content, uh, and and sometimes people don't read the content to understand that, so they 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 read the headline, they get that, and then they move on, which is it's that's the nature of the beast. At the very least, in printed press, when we had the newspaper, you know, typically people would read the rest of the article if they're going to read the headline, and now it's uh, now it's you know you you see the thumbnail on a Facebook post and you see the headline and nobody really reads the discussion and the headlines just have to be, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Sensationalist. That's the word I'm looking for. They have, the headlines have to be sensationalized and, and it, and it makes, it creates for an environment where everything has to be sensationalized and sensational. Um, and you know, the opposite of nuanced. True. Now I, I want to get into discussion because we had a couple calls and some emails back and forth because you were flat out. You're a lawyer. Shockingly, you were, a little bit worried about going on a podcast you didn't know. And I find it interesting that we are in such a state now that we have to really be careful. We have to be careful. I mean, we've seen what happens with uh, someone as, as big as PewDiePie who call it endorses, but I don't think that's the proper word, but you know, who, who says I've watched X, Y, and Z channels, and then it turns out that one of the channels he referenced has certain videos in the past that can be qualified as uh, alt-right or extreme-right, or you know, having offensive racist content mm-hmm. on it. And one has no idea of knowing that because it's impossible to do a thorough due diligence of anyone that you're asked to speak with, and the the and it creates uh, very big problems insofar as guilt by association and this sort of online call it a mob mentality or reaction reactionary mentality where if people find one piece of dirt or they or if people want to oversimplify and say that by having watched certain videos on certain channels you therefore endorse everything on those channels and people want to create drama about it and it can lead to very big problems so you know i get pr- approached a lot and it's not a question of saying i i don't like your content so i'm not going to do anything with you it's just a question of making sure that you have to make sure that people have not engaged in what the internet world will deem to be objectionable stuff and you be guilty by association if you don't know about it. And it's, it is dangerous. It's like, on the one hand, it's good because it makes people think about what they're doing before they do it. On the other hand, it is very difficult to fully vet anybody before doing anything. So it does create sort of like a a fear or paralysis of doing anything with anybody because you never know what someone has done three years ago on social media. You don't know what they tweeted out five years ago. You know, it's funny. You, you said something that I think is really an important point out of all that. When you said deem inappropriate or deem offensive, we have a lot of people who determine that things are offensive, that maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe some people are too sensitive about things or they're just looking for ways to weaponize against somebody else for sure i think joe i think it was i don't know if joe rogan created the term uh recreational outrage and oppression olympics <laughs> well, yeah, no, that, that's another one but the recreational outrage i mean we see it on some people will call it virtue signaling other others will call it recreational outrage but it is we see it on social media people are looking to i don't know if they're looking to get angry about things but there's just so much out there like when you're on the internet everything in the world is out there so you can find something to get angry about and um, or, or shocked about or outraged about, and you have a, a tool with which you can, uh, you can express your outrage to the entire world. And then it becomes this sort of uh, vicious circle or, or self-fulfilling, no, not a self-fulfilling process. It becomes a vicious circle of sorts where 
everyone everyone can find something to get outraged about if they do, and then vocalizes their outrage. But no, yeah, I mean, I, I do. People are definitely. I don't think they're more sensitive. It's just that it's much easier to find something to get outraged about today, and and I think people seem to be going out of their way to do it for whatever the reason. There's some stuff that's objectively objectionable that people should get outraged about, and then you know less so stuff. I, I remember I had a discussion with a friend about a what was on the box of a Halloween costume, and they found it uh, exploitive. I was like, geez, it, it, at some point, if the goal is to get upset about something, you can do it all day long, and there'll be something to get upset about. It used to be if you didn't like something, you turn off the station, you turn off the radio, and you go on with your day. But now it's just because it's it's everywhere all the time. Uh, people are getting angry and outraged at everything all the time, and it, it creates uh, it creates its own energy on on the internet. Have you heard of the book? So you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. I have not. I one one of my one of my many flaws. I don't read enough books and. Uh, and uh, but no, I haven't heard about it, but I can imagine what, what what it's about. But what, what is it about? <laughs> well, what, one of the main cases he goes into, I, I believe her name is Justine Sacco or Sacco. She um she is the one who made a a tweet that was meant as a joke. It wasn't a great joke, but it was essentially going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. And she shut off her phone, got on the plane. By the time she got there, she had lost her job. Uh, everybody had piled on it, had gone all the way around the internet. It was more viral than your squirrel video. And everybody was saying, I can't believe it. The bitch is good. She's out of a job. I kept, and the pile on was so fierce. And sadly, her joke was not really meant to be offensive to them. It was kind of making fun of herself. Like, look at me. I'm an entitled white woman, blah, 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 blah. But it just went completely flat. She lost everything. She was stalked. She was shamed. It was horrible. Well, it is. So there's, there's, there are two sides to that coin as well. Like the, the ramifications of doing something, I'll, I'll call that objectively uh, poor judgment. Ramifications of making that, those types of poor okay. judgments are no longer, it's no longer you did it at the dinner table and embarrassed yourself. You did it at the global dinner table and there's a lot of people at that table. Um, and so it, to, I mean, the, the, the problem is that we do live in a world sometimes where the the consequences do not uh, are not proportionate to the infraction at all, but that's the that is social media. And there's nothing there's nothing you can do about that because that's just the nature of social media. It's one of its flaws. It's also to some extent it's one of its benefits because the good stuff can spread just as fast as the bad stuff. Um, but then the you know the immediate reflex is you have to think before you tweet. I mean it's it's it, there can be countless examples of of people making tweets. First of all, sarcasm translates very badly in written word, very badly. I mean, I, I, and even tone translates word. badly. I write messages, you know, when I respond to comments and I oftentimes will write, please read this with the gentle tone in which it's written. Because even when I read it back to me, it, when I read it back to myself, it reads much more aggressively than, than it was ever intended to be. And so some of these jokes, first of all, I mean, it, it, there's a time and a place for certain types of humor, which is why, you know, you, if you go to a a New York stand-up comedy club at midnight, you'll expect those types of jokes, so you'll be somewhat less outraged than if it comes through prime time on uh, the Disney network. And, and that's sort of the thing about Twitter and, and this, this public sphere that people don't really appreciate is dirty jokes and offensive humor has, has a form, and it doesn't translate well onto this public square that is Twitter and, um, and Facebook and, and Instagram. That, that said, the, the, we live in a world where the, where the consequences are sometimes so disproportionately excessive to the, oh, the, the, the error of judgment um, that it makes everyone, everyone should be scared of the consequences, but everyone should also just be trained to reflect on what they're about to say that's going to be visible to the entire world to some extent. Well, it's weird because you have consequences going the other way. Like there's many people who don't like Trump. Part of the reason Trump is where he is, is because nothing sticks to him. He's like, I'm offensive, screw you. And he just throws it at everybody and it's all baked in. So it's like, well, congratulations. We're now in such a crazy toxic environment that it takes somebody who many would call completely repulsive, who flat out doesn't care to push it in. You know, I, it's a funny thing. I always wonder how much he doesn't care. I can't imagine anyone actually doesn't care about the names that they're called. And But yeah, I mean, th this is the thing. It is, and when I say it's like a vicious circle or it's sort of like the Pandora's box that's been opened, it, well, nobody, it, it goes both ways, but then, and then Pendulum. you end up living in a world where, uh, where, where uh, official government business is done by Twitter. I mean, it's, it, it is, it is weird. Um, 
and I mean, some of you know some of the tweets that are that 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 come out of the president's office, they're also objectively in, improper. And this is this is not to judge everything and anything about an individual based on a tweet, but that's the, that's the way the world works now. Sure. But yeah, it's it's people use Twitter, and I, they don't appreciate the consequences, or they sort of treat it as uh, as a tool for whatever whatever is the game that they're playing. Um, and you know the president's no different. We have our, our prime minister is no different. He uses Twitter, but he uses it for his own his own purposes and 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 by the rules that he uses it for. It's just the the issue is you can spread hate hate and reactionary uh, whiplash so quickly that it's more quickly. It actually there's studies that are done on that, and anger draws the fastest, or you, you get the biggest response if you get people angry. And that's been proven over and over, and it's in the algorithms, et cetera, that if you say something that makes people angry, they're like eight times more likely to share it than something that makes them laugh. Oh, 100%. Happy. I mean, you can see that on, on videos that a lot, everyone on YouTube who creates content, or not everyone, but a lot of people typically try to focus on the thumbs up without really appreciating that there's a ton of, ton of content that YouTube doesn't care if it gets thumbs down, if it's getting hate messages just so long as it's getting uh, traffic yeah. and you know people are being drawn to it, and you can. It's obvious the stuff that goes viral is always majority. Sorry, I don't know if you're going to have heard that beep. All too often, the stuff that goes viral is bad stuff. I mean, people getting into fights, uh, people getting injured, accidents, people misbehaving, going on rants on public buses, and 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 it's not always the stuff that's as adorable as that. That I don't know if you saw the video that went viral recently about a dad having a gibberish conversation with his kid while they're watching Game of Thrones, and that was everywhere. But like the cute stuff goes viral, but the <laughs> the angry sort of stuff that people get shocked at goes even more viral more often. And yeah, you know, people make tweets that they think are funny, that it's like, it's sort of maybe some dirty joke they'd make with their friend, but they're not just talking to their friend. So you make, and it's not to say that this woman deserves to lose everything for that, for that tweet. It's just that you're not, you're not making that tweet to your, your circle of friends at a dinner table. You're making it to a world and, and some people are going to be right, you know, outraged at that. And, and they have the tools to now just, you know, swamp the person with, with, with uh, all the tools that the online world provides to them. It, it, it is, it's, 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 it, it, there's a beauty of the ease with which information can be transferred on the internet. And then there's the risk uh, with which the, the rage can be transferred as well. Oh, sure. It's, a, it's one of those, the good news is the bad news is, and it's the same thing. Yeah. I'm in podcasting. The good news is it's never been easier to start a podcast. The bad news is it's never been easier to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I, you, and you have to navigate and you have to sort of, rise to the top of, of everybody now who, who can do this for on, on a budget and, and who can have you know, not, not full, uh, is it Siri or Sirius XM? It's serious. It, you know, it's not Sirius XM level exposure, but everybody now uh, has, a, has a means through which to get their voice out there. And it's, it is, it's wow. amazing and it creates a lot of traffic. <laughs> yeah, look at you. You've been doing this for five years. That's, I found you about two wow. weeks ago. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I was doing everything wrong. I, I, not everything wrong. I was just not doing anything right for the first three years. And then I figured out, you know, the basics, thumbnails, tag words, descriptions. And then I figured out, I finally got, I don't want to say beaten into my niche. My niche found me. So, and now I, you know, I fully appreciate that YouTube, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it can, you hear my dogs in the background? Oh, yes. <laughs> if anybody watches his videos, Buster's always involved you got i got i got no i got a french bulldog and the puggle but the frenchie sits on the stairs and just barks at everybody that goes by the uh, goes by the window um and now i forgot what i was saying oh yes yes the the thing about youtube is people use it as a means to put up that one-off video where they catch two people fighting or they catch a, a squirrel stealing a gopro or you know, a rat carrying a piece of pizza up the stairs mm -hmm. but for people who have a channel that want to treat their channel like an asset it requires a niche and it requires consistency and it requires um, yeah, call it quality control, just so that people who come back know what they're getting, and so that and and so that YouTube knows where to put your videos, so that people who are looking for that can find it. And that's what I just discovered in the last, really, in the last year and a half. Um, and you also generate a lot of traffic from commenting on other videos too, correct? I, I, I'm active in terms of the I'm active in terms of watching and, and consuming content. First of all, because I need to I need to get the information before I can actually 
have an opinion or not have an opinion, but rather prepare any content of my own to talk about something. Um, and I have the own, I have my own channels that I love, like, uh, Casey. Oh, Casey. Well, Casey, everybody loves Casey. Um, Jablinski, Jack Black has a channel. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and then I watch, uh, you know, I watch the young Turks to get my information from there. I watch the amazing Lucases to get my information from there and to know what people are, are thinking. And I like commenting. I mean, I, I, I reread and reread before I send anything before I hit your lawyer. Yeah. I, I look, and I don't want to, I don't want to trigger outrage either deliberately or accidentally. It's like, you know, I, there, I have a friend who's a psychologist and we talk in the park and we're friends on Facebook. And I remember one day he posted something on Facebook and it struck with me to the point where he didn't even remember posting it, it was years ago. But he said, sometimes the question you have to ask yourself is not whether or not it's right. Uh, what you're about to say, it's just, why are you about to say it? And mm-hmm. a lot, you know, there's, I, there's things that I can say that are right, that are hundred percent accurate, that are on point, but you know, by saying them, you're going to be hurting people. You're going to be you're going to be participating in the creation of this negative energy that's going to spin on itself. So why do it? Someone else will do it for sure. Um, do I want to be the one to create that negative energy on somebody else's channel? Do I want to be that one to bring that negativity to that channel? Or do I even just want to be the one to say that even though it's true? So, so I, I measure my comments before I put them out there, but I do like participating because it's, uh, it is fun to, to be part of this virtual community and have discussions with people. Uh, all across the world. Well, and it helps people discover you too. But I, I find myself doing what you said. I will sometimes type out a comment and then I'll just sit there and look at it and go, does that really do anything for me? Do I really feel like arguing about this for an hour? Do I really care about this other person's dumb comment? Hmm. Let me go create something. And I I go one step beyond that. Uh, I read, I say, do I want to, is this going to go anywhere? Because if the person on the other end is a bona fide troll, you know that it's always a moving target. And the more you say, the more they're going to have something to pick apart or to attack you on. Uh, And I get the impression that that's what it is. And there's no point even engaging because it just, it'll go on forever. But I, you know, even if I say the comments, fine, the comments worthwhile, I'm going to do it. I sit there and I read that comment over and over again. I say, if someone wants to misinterpret this comment, how are they going to do it? And if I think that there's a plausible way that it can be justifiably or understandably misinterpreted, I just don't even post it. I, I had a, you know, even when I prepare my thumbnails, I look at this and I say, how can someone misread this in a bad way? And if it's realistic and probable or even plausible, uh, I'll switch up the thumbnail. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a question of avoiding inadvertent or even uh, accidental controversy. You know, I, I can push on that a little bit going the other way. I think it's terrible that we're in a state that we have to self-censor. And I read a book by uh, Michael Malice. He's a very interesting guy, if you ever want to check him out. He's a troll, self-admitted troll. But he uh, was born in the Soviet Union, and his parents came over here with him. And as he put it, in the Soviet Union, they're very, very clever. And their tactics are, if you say something objectionable and you're a known firebrand or whatever, they may or may not go after you. They like going after like middle-aged housewives who get out of hand and going after them hard because then everybody's going, Oh Jesus, that, that, that could be me. And that causes people to stay in line even more. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I know that that is the, that is sort of the, um, the perception is that it, it intimidates people into silence and into agreement, but that's not where I go with it. It's not a question of, it's not a question of not expressing oneself for fear of someone disagreeing with you. I think, and this is the discussion I had with the amazing Lucas who I said, you know, like, you know, it's not necessarily what you're saying, but you know, by the way in which you're saying it, that you're going to offend certain people. And so why not present it in a way that they can get offended by the substance, but not by the form type thing. Um, but, but the flip side, and I understand the flip side, is that when you live in a world like today where you need to get people's attentions and you need to uh, get them excited and you sort of need to stimulate them, the, unfortunately, the easy and effective way to do it is to be a little controversial in getting the message across, even if the message is not itself controversial. And, th- and that's where I just, I think that's why I have uh, maybe a more modest growth is that I don't engage in that sort of sensationalized method of expression um, which I think it hurts me, but I think that's, that's no, it's sustainable though. It, it's a weird thing because you look at, um, like I'll, I'll throw a name out there. Milo. Well, my, yeah. Yeah. He went from, you know, sort of known to just huge through polarization to nobody again. 
So I kind of feel like that kind of just coming along, building gradually, building gradually, becoming a known quantity, becoming trustworthy to most folks. And I hate to say non-controversial, but kind of. Well, it could be. There's a difference between non-controversial and non-confrontational because, I, first of all, I don't think I'm, con- I don't think I'm controversial. It's, I don't seek to be non-controversial. I, I just fundamentally know that I have very few controversial opinions about things. I mean, you know, I, I, I like Howard Stern and I don't know if that's controversial. You know, I like, I, I watch certain movies. I don't know if it's con- con- controversial in this day and age to, um, to even watch certain movies, but I, I don't consider myself con- controversial. I just know that I, the method with which I try to deliver a message, I try to be non-confrontational be- and, and non-polarizing because I, there's no point. For, on the one hand, there will be the other people like the Milos and uh, the Young Turks to be polarizing and uh, controversial in delivery. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with the Milo example is an interesting one because th- there's the explosion, but then it, it, it reaches like a critical mass where they do something that mm-hmm. mainstream, even from both sides, says, "Well, now we have to now we have to sever ties." Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, it's, it's, with with Milo, I, I followed that from the beginning because I and right up until the, the massive controversy, uh, right. And I think the only thing that's, that that strikes me with that is that there is something of a, I, I perceive double standard in terms of what is accepted from some people versus others. But that uh, <laughs> that's that's because that's that's if like we said I made, said about my video on YouTube about the Vox apocalypse, it. It's just the unequal application of the guiding rules that becomes the problem, not the application of the rules themselves. Um, Correct. Because you know, I, I think Milo objectively said some things over the years which were, they're objectively offensive, controversial. Typically, Absolutely. if you don't like it, don't follow it and, and change the channel. Um, but it's just that the, the, the hammer coming down on him and the hammer coming down on some people, it's just not, uh, it's not uh, equal application of the hammer. I mean, well, you have a countryman who is uh, very polarizing. Uh, very uh, yeah yeah <laughs> well uh, right now i'm i'm working on i'm researching and i say researching in a not in a lofty way i'm just i'm looking into making a vlog on what we have our bill six c16 everyone in the state telling me it's we have we have compelled speech laws in canada and i'm you know i'm trying to figure out where people are getting that from and i started watching jordan peterson and i started watching all the videos and and reading the articles on the subject and now i understand why people are saying that and now i understand where the where that image and where that that depiction has come from, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it. It's an interesting, it's a very interesting discussion in the law in and of itself because it's never quite as simple as the sound bites that people take away, which get them to watch and and which get them to leave with the the two line summary. Canada has compelled speech. It's it's obviously it's nuanced and it's not it's not that simple. I look forward to that, and also it's been said that Canada does not have technically free speech. At least you don't have a bill of rights. Well, we, we have a we have a Canadian Charter of Human Rights and what we call the Canadian Constitution, which protects free speech, which guarantees free speech and freedom of the press. It's and this is like again the oversimplification, so that people can get outraged or people can judge other 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 countries for the perceived lack of of free speech. And I said this in one of my last videos, and I said I said Canada has free speech. We just have more restrictions than in the states. And then someone's comment on the bottom was Canada has free speech. Canada has free speech restrictions. Try to try to coincide those two terms. My answer, and it's going to be in a video, and I'm going to say it here, is the U.S. has free speech, but it also has limitations on free speech. Defamation. Question on that with the free speech because a call to action is usually where most people agree that a call to action is not speech. It's a compulsion or something different. Is that where you were going with some of this? Yeah, well, I, well for, I don't, it's also, I don't think it's, unless my understanding is oversimplified, I, I don't think it's the only the call to action. I think hate, hate speech against an identifiable group is, is, is not protected. If you break it down, it is free speech. We, we had the, um, I think it was ACLU, supporting Nazis that were marching in Illinois. And you can't get any more repulsive than Nazi. That's kind of the high water mark of disgusting and technically hate speech is one thing now if you say somebody is blah 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 and you use a racial term that's one thing but if you say kill that somebody that's a call to action yeah so so even let's just say then we agree on that i mean let's just say we agree on that 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 description then someone will say well i had someone could oversimplify and say well there's no free speech if you can't say certain things because all you're saying is words now qualifying it as a call to action is a way of explaining away the limitation of the ability to say certain words in 
sequence. Um, and so in that sense, yes, you can't have a call to action of violence against individuals, identifiable groups. So there's a limitation on free speech, even in the States. And then you have your civil uh, limitations, which are libation, slander. So, yeah, libel, slander, defamation, which which people also don't appreciate. Now, or the, or the, the argument to that would be is you have the free speech, but it's not consequence free. free. Exactly. So, and now it's, it's similar in Canada. It's just that in Canada, the call to action is a little bit broader. I mean, and I say, I, I'm not trying to defend it because I do think it got, has gone a little too far where we had a comedian who was guilty of defamation for some offensive humor. Um, yeah, he said the R word, right? I, I mean, I don't know the details offhand. So I wouldn't want to get into it, but right. <laughs> there's no question. Like, like we are objectively the plaintiff-friendly defamation jurisdiction, where in the States, you are definitely the defendant-friendly jurisdiction. Thank you, Larry Flint. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and that, and that's the example. But there are limitations on free speech anywhere. You can't scream fire in a crowded theater. And I got into an argument about someone as to whether or not this was the legal principle, but it's straight out of a Supreme Court decision. So there yes. are limitations everywhere, and there have to be. The, it's just a question of balance. And I think my personal opinion is that in Canada, we're sort of definitely going to this to the point which is a little bit over uh censoring of free speech in the name of protection mm-hmm. and I, I i you know the states is definitely more you have the first amendment and we have article 2b of the charter of canadian the canadian charter of human rights which doesn't ring quite as impactfully as the first amendment but uh no the u.s is definitely has has much fewer limitations on free speech and then you go to england where in Europe, where it's 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 even worse. I mean, you, it's you people get people get the knock on the door for Facebook posts. It's uh, scary. It it is a it's a different world because when you when you start getting into the the fuzzy realm of what constitutes hate speech or what constitutes uh, restricted speech, you could just easily see how it can be abused and 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 exploited for. It already is. It, I mean, it's. Have you heard of the term cry bully? I have heard of that. Yes, <laughs> I think it's a perfect term, though. I mean, there are people who objectively use um, victimization. You know, they're, they're a victim looking for an insult. It, there's, there's, there, that, I think, is a global phenomenon and not one that's related strictly to free speech. I mean, that's... that's True. The, the, the victimhood stat... The victimhood... The search for victimhood, I mean, is... We do see a lot of it. And the, and the problem is... I would say Western world, though, versus global, because... Honestly, in Africa, I don't think they care that much. There's, there's certainly, there certainly is. There are levels to the world problems. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the thing is, there are legitimate grievances, and there are legitimate, there are you know real problems, and it, then it becomes an issue where I, I think they call them microaggressions. But then it becomes the excessive point where, and it gets back to the recreational outrage. It's that people are looking to be outraged. People are looking to find. Sure. They're looking to find problems as opposed to actually um, finding solutions or or I say like I think intent. I think intent is something that's lost. People really need to look at what was the intent of the comment. If if somebody did not intend to offend, they they may be culturally different. They may be whatever. They're not trying to harm or you know hurt somebody's feelings necessarily. A lot of times, if they're told, they're like, "Oh my god, I had no idea." Well, the problem the problem with intent is it's a double edged sword because then the problem is people read into non offensive comments and read in an offensive intent in order to demonize the other person. I, I swear to you, I, t- I think all of this is the trickle down from the state of politics in the US, the state of politics in Canada, and the state of politics in the world where people are I, people no longer are looking to understand each other. They're looking to demonize their ideological mm-hmm. adversaries. And the easiest way to do it is to purport to have been a victim of that person, to purport that what that person said is um, an overt insult, it is an implied insult, or it was taken as an insult. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, you talk about the chilling effect that that has. I, I was editing a video together of a wonderful soiree of, at, a, at a fancy restaurant, and one of the, one of the chefs used a word uh, to describe the cuisine as oriental cuisine. And I, I remember, but this chef is not, first language is not English. And so, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's not the politically correct term anymore. It's Asian cuisine. But then, you know, I'm thinking in, I don't know what, what. Asia is India too. So the problem with that is that's going too far in the overcorrection. Is involving Far East Asia versus India. And I mean, the Middle East is Asia. it's, It's even, it's even more than that. I don't know what the word is in the original language of the person speaking. And it might be 
it might be a, a, a derived version of that which is not offensive in their language or which just doesn't have any of the same political ramifications. And so, you know, my my first reflex is I'm not I'm not going to find it offensive. I'm not going to look to find it offensive. I'm going to look to just you know I know the person and I assume the intentions. But when you assume intentions, it depends on what your intentions are in assuming the intentions of the other. That's that's where you know if it's in in the political debate, you you can never you don't score points by assuming the goodwill of your political adversary that's how you look weak and it's, a, it's the exact same thing in law which is what was driving me like which was crushing my soul is that no one was ever looking to understand and no one was ever looking to arrive at a mutually acceptable middle ground because that was that was contrary to the to, to what we were doing as a profession and it's the same thing in politics and i think that's just trickled down now to human interactions it, it, to the to the point where it's i it's a it's a fundamental problem which is why the underlying theme of whatever I'm doing on, on social media is not to contribute to that. It's to try to bridge that or at least, you know, make people realize you can you can actually have sensible discussions with people that you disagree with. Oh, sure. And, and I'm guessing, though, you wind up just cutting it out because you're like, if I have to think this over so much, I'm just going to cut it out so I don't have to think about it. That, that one I kept in. I said, if everyone's going to have a problem with that, we're, we're, we're going to have a problem with me, you know, well, quite literally, like some people have taken issue with me doing cooking videos where I, uh, with the food that I'm cooking, because I appreciate that there's vegans and vegetarians out there. It's just that I I don't I don't have any moral qualms eating meat. Um, but people make comments on that. When I make fishing, you know, I make fishing videos. People say uh, criticize me for causing harm to another living animal. Um, and there's like you know I have my own threshold for what I feel morally comfortable doing in the world, and other people have theirs. But it's when the, it's when those two moral worlds are not prepared to live with one another that we degrade into the negativity that you find so prevalent on on the internet. People, people get religious about veganism and, and um, primal diet, keto. I mean, these diets and stuff, they are almost a cult or religion. Well, I, I, but yeah, I won't say cult because that has negative connotations. I can accept that they're a religion, and I can accept that people— What is religion? It's just a, a cult of scale. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> that I, I, can, I can understand that some—the thing about religion is it's, it's fundamental to people's beings. So you can't—some you know, you, people who are, who are atheist or who are not religious will— Oh, that's no, no, no. Atheist is a religion. Well, too. so let's say I don't want to say sacrilegious, but you know, like I understand how people who are not into religion look at it like a cult, and I am not. Uh, I don't consider myself religious. I do consider myself spiritual. I, but I, I won't write off religion as a cult uh, in a judgmental sense. That everyone is entitled to believe what they want to believe to the extent that they don't hurt anyone. I mean it with good humor. <laughs> well, no, no, I know, I know. Hey, I'm just covering my butt here. <laughs> What about uh, sound I, I like, people are going to think I'm calling religions cults, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be the end of it. But um, no, no. So the thing is, like, I understand it. I understand it's a, it's a, it's a it's a analogous to a religion, veganism, and I understand that someone has paleo is as well. I'm not just picking on <laughs> veganism. Well, diets. Well, look, anything that involves any these things are they they operate the same way uh, religious practices do. But all I say is, I understand how someone has a moral issue, spiritual issue with taking the life of an animal. My personal philosophy on it is that, and I've told my kids this all the time, is that if, if, you, if you're going to kill an animal, you have to be ready to eat it, and that you don't kill for pleasure, you, you kill for sustenance. And no one is going to convince me that it is immoral to eat meat for sustenance. I, I, no one's going to convince me that just because I fundamentally what I believe. And I may have a psychological change, but you know, I've, I've I, I kill fish occasionally when I go fishing. If they die, I eat them because it's 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 the it's the rule. Um, if I can put the fish back, I put the fish back because unless I'm unless I need to eat it, I, I will not kill it if I don't have to. But so I mean, but but it's 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 the unwillingness of some people who believe so strongly in their personal moral convictions that they uh, seek to impose them on others, and that's where I always say like the, the line between freedom of choice and oppression is someone telling me what they believe. Um, or is someone telling me what they do because they believe it versus someone telling me what I have to do because they believe it? Well, certainty, um, certainty offers comfort for some people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, and, and it's a good rule. Nobody can complain about somebody not wanting to kill an animal or thinking it's immoral. I just, you know, there is, from a scientific perspective, and I looked into this afterwards just to be sure that I, my memory was right, but the biggest spike in, the, in human evolution was when we started eating meat and started eating cooked proteins because they were easier to digest and easier to view our brain. The yeah. argument would be today that we don't need to do that because we can get the proteins from elsewhere. But that's actually, no, there's a lot of pushback on that. And there's, well, that's, I, I, I believe that I, be, I personally believe in the pushback as well. Cause I, I think the proteins are fundamentally different uh, from uh, childhood development. 
the, the supplements are not as good as the original. Maybe when you're fully developed as an adult, you can get away with it. A lot of vegans have had to go back to meat. A lot of vegans have had to, you know, not, you know, because of moral, but just flat out, they were sick. Yeah. Well, I'd say I, I, I don't, I don't have enough anecdotal evidence to, to support one or the other. It's just that I like, I, I could, I could probably agree that as a society, we eat way too much meat and I probably eat more meat than I need. Um, but I, but like, to the extent that our stomachs were, I won't say created or designed, but to the extent that our bodies, <laughs> I love that you dance. No, it's like, you know, I, I, oh, do I believe that we were created in God as another, you know, thing? But we definitely have a design. To the extent that my design is intended to digest meat, I don't think it's a, a more a question of morality anymore. And I remember one of the, from, I studied philosophy in, in McGill, and I, I yeah, we're living in a postmodern world for sure. Well, so that, one of our courses was feminist philosophy, and I took the course because I wanted to. I, I wanted to learn about it. And there was one, I think it, I don't want to misquote it being Andrea Dworkin, but there was one um, feminist philosopher who moralized sex as being an act of, of, of male dominance over, over females. Of course. And now I said, so I, and now I, it was instantly, I didn't get a very good grade in this class because I didn't, you know, university is probably about more about telling the professor what you know the professor wants you to hear as opposed to telling the professor what you think. But sure. I said, I said, it's impossible to moralize a natural bodily function. I mean, it's like, it's like moralizing going to the bathroom. You can't moralize procreation any more than you can moralize the fact that our stomachs are meant to digest certain types of proteins. Uh, a horse, which a sure. horse cannot digest meat. And a, you know, a lion eating a gazelle is not a question of morality. It's not, it's not because um, we have the ability to find these ways to try to fill in the the, the the what's the word what, what we're missing as a result of, of of going against the way our bodies were designed that we should do it it's it's i'm sure we could find ways that don't involve sex to procreate uh it doesn't mean that i'm going to moralize the act of of, of procreation yeah I, I totally agree and I, I mean it gets it gets silly it's like well you probably don't like sex and I that. <laughs> well i guess all i know is i got i got a c minus in that class and i got in trouble because i referred to my professor on one of my it's one of my biggest memories from mcgill i i referred to the professor as ms blank and when i got my essay back the ms was crossed out and doctor was written in this place and and, and mm. i'm not saying this, like i it's not that i referred to her as ms blank and the other male professors as doctor i, I referred to everyone as mr and mr mr and ms it was i it, at that time in my life uh, and this was before my wife became a PhD, but even she doesn't insist that anybody call a doctor. I never, I never <laughs> appreciated how important that doctor. Uh, well, you're a doctor. Well, no, I'm I'm a maître. In, in Quebec, we call it maître, which is literally like French for master, because lawyers are the masters of their files. But I think JD. Oh, JD is a juris doctor. But yeah, I don't think we we have an LLB, which is I don't know exactly. It's Latin, and I don't know what it stands for. It's terrible. But um, no, I I. I genuinely hate when people call me maître freiheit as opposed to david i mean i i, I hate it because i don't like the hierarchy of this thing it's i yeah i i studied my law and i got my degree but i it's not something that i use to distinguish myself from the rest of the the rest of society but anyhow that was that was just one of my funny speaking of that i'm, I'm gonna change gears completely and i've got to ask you how do you deal with filming yourself all the time? Well, no, I mean, that's something that I have trouble getting my head around. Even if nobody's around, they might be looking at a window in my mind. So how, how do you do that? You're walking around a blood clinic and, and chatting with people and you're filming the whole time. That took four years to get comfortable talking to the camera without having that sort of shy, timid, held back voice. Because, you know, most people, when they if they're not, not comfortable, but if they're just, if they haven't owned the fact that they're going to do it, you can tell when they're uncomfortable doing it in public. And I, I look back at videos and I can tell that I was sort of talking soft like this and trying to talk to the camera without having people hear me. And at one point, and I think it coincided with me owning the push scooter in public. Put what I, you know, I, I have a means of transportation in Montreal. I have a, like a, a kid's push scooter. It's got the wheels. And, and at first when I would go around with it, I was embarrassed. Like people are going to, I'm embarrassed because I think on the one hand, people are going to think like I had my license taken away from me for a DUI and I'm, I'm resorted to like a Homer Simpson <laughs> riding Lisa's bike to school. But so I was very shy on that push scooter. But then one thing my wife said, one day you got to own that scooter if you're going to go around town in it and stop, you know, like trying to hide from traffic, just go in the middle of traffic. And it's about that time where I said, if I'm talking to a camera, I'm just going to do it. People are going to look at me like I'm crazy and, um, and ask me what I'm doing. And, and they do. 
but it was it was about it was about the time of that blood clinic one where where I was talking about being a lawyer and I was walking down Green Avenue, which is a you know popular street in Montreal, and uh, you just it, it's not a question of uh, like judgment or or be looking weird. It's just it's, it's something unnatural about talking to an inanimate object when you're around people. Uh, but I you know I eventually got used to it. It took like four years, but I got used to it. Do you talk to it as if it's a person? I talk to it as though I'm talking to someone else in real time on the other side of it. Okay, yeah, I was wondering about that. If you you know you're you're with a friend yeah well basically it's i i i can i'm talking to it as though i'm seeing what the other person is going to see when they're looking at it through their computer um the the times where it gets say embarrassing or awkward is when i'm trying to say a damn line and i keep flubbing it and then i and then i'm in public and someone doesn't know what i'm doing and just hears me repeating the same sentence like four or five six times and and then yelling at myself for for not for like screwing it up not yelling at myself like bill o'reilly just like it's weird that that that's where it gets but uh but typically i mean i i don't i don't rehearse and i don't do the lines over and over again i just you know sit down put plop it down and talk to the camera for a few minutes and then go edit my uh edit my content into the into the, whatever the, the video is about well you don't have a ton of jump cuts which i'm thankful for well i have i have I, I edit out. Uh, some people accuse me of having too much, too many jump cuts. Just in the sense that I edit out the pauses, just because I pauses. You know, the internet, you have a very short attention span. Even if it's a two-second pause, if I say that can cut it out, I cut it out. Um, but no, I, I, generally it's it's pretty linear. I, you watch Philip DeFranco, I imagine. Yeah. So his yeah. jump cuts are. I, I, they're they're a next level beyond mine. I, I think I have jump cuts. And people criticize me for them, but his are. <laughs> Yeah, next level. I don't know. Consider it. That's not a criticism because I think it 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 keeps it keeps you involved. It keeps you entertained. Or say it keeps you engaged. And silence on the internet. If people needed silence, they would turn off the internet, not turn it on. Well, he's almost max headroom. <laughs> it is. It's all editing. Though. I mean, he edits sentences together where he'll cut out. Like I would imagine, it's three tenths of a second of a pause to get right to the next sentence. But uh, look, it gets a lot of information in 15 minutes. I, I, I personally think it might be too much. And which is why, like, when I was deciding on, on the, how to do my vlogs, a while back, I would do two or three subjects in a vlog. But I, I, find, it's, uh, I find that's less effective than just doing one subject vlog. Um, and if people want the second subject, they'll come back to it later. But when Phil, Phil has a different game plan where he deals with a number of subjects, like a news station, so he, he can't just do one, one theme vlogs every day. Or one theme, sorry, one theme videos every day. Well, and I, I like that you do the, I forget what they call it, film, but you do like the long continuous shots. Like, yeah, like you're I'm walking in my studio, which is a walk-in closet, <laughs> and and shoot the whole thing, and then I'll go do another part somewhere else, and not uh, just yeah, they're, they're sort of, I say not linear, but they're sort of. Uh, I found people got a little irritated when there was too much distraction, but then get bored when there's not enough distraction. Mm -hmm. So it's just it's just a question of. Switch up scenes just to keep it interesting, but not too often to get annoying. And get Buster involved. That dog, I tell you, when that dog's, I, I, every thumbnail is going to have Barney's face in it because when, when that dog's face is in a thumbnail and when people know he's going to be in the video, I, I, think it, I think it has an impact. But he's, he's, he's so cute because whenever I sit there making videos, he ends up coming up to my lap and you know, I, I pick him up to give him some screen time. Well, and it, it's you almost, you're training him. <laughs> really? It's, well, he, he is, I don't say he's my number one asset, but he's definitely, something that you know people love dogs and it's it's the ultimate pick-me-up or or distraction from what might otherwise be serious subject matter that's good dog, dogs lower blood pressure oh definitely definitely well david this has been just a freaking treat and people can find you obviously on youtube i'm on youtube it's viva fry i got my twitter handle which is the viva fry because some dude in Russia literally has Viva Fry and I, I want to get it from him. But you want to talk like my delusional thoughts or not delusional, but like the, the, the paranoia of the internet. I, I don't want to buy someone else's social media handle, even if it's the same one as mine, because God knows what they might have in their social media closet. It's, it's like, it's like you, know, you have to do due <laughs> diligence before even contemplating social media acquisitions. So the Viva Fry on Twitter, Viva Fry on Instagram, Viva Fry, I have a page on Facebook. and uh, but, but YouTube is my is my major platform because I, I genuinely hate Twitter. It's, it's a negative, sure. it's a negative force of, of, of badness and Instagram's beautiful, but Instagram is, you know, pictures. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean, for free, it is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands, or you can go to unstructuredpod.com and there are plenty of links there. 
Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Susan C. Bennett, the original voice of Siri. Randall Kenneth Jones likes to talk, and he loves to listen. Over the past few years, more than 100 people, celebrities, newsmakers, thought leaders, rock stars, journalists, artists, humanitarians, and more, have chatted with Randy about the ups and downs and the ins and outs of a life well-lived. So if you like conversation, laughter, and thought, Jones.show is for you. Subscribe for free to Jones.show on iTunes, Google, or your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. 